Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, everyone, and we are back, of course, with another episode. I am very lucky and excited to have Mr. Dave Gardner on the show. Dave, thanks so much for being here, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. You're very, very welcome. And I love to get this show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Well, I'm a longtime uh, professional filmmaker, uh, had my own business, uh, really producing, mostly producing films for Fortune 500 companies for over 30 years and uh, helping those companies grow their revenue and grow their profits frequently and also helping them uh, spin, uh, you know, produce some spin and propaganda in the process. So I really got a good uh, uh, education in tools that could be used for uh, what I ultimately came to decide was better purposes, which is really saving the planet. So about 15 years ago, I decided to produce a documentary uh, that no one was going to pay me to produce, but was a story that I really felt needed to be told. And, and that was uh, really kind of exploring our culture's obsession with growth. Uh, and it really started out, it was just going to be about population growth. But as I began to research for, for the film, I soon discovered that our obsession with economic growth uh, played a, a major role in the population growth story. And that both of those two growths were uh, uh, dangers to, to human civilization and needed to be explored. So I ended, yeah. up, I ended up with a film, Growthbusters, Hooked on Growth, uh, really kind of 50% population growth, 50% economic growth. Yeah. And guys, the film is fantastic. I spent this morning watching the whole thing. It's not very long and you learned so much in every little five minute block. It's all so thoughtfully done. How long... Did, how long did it take to go from conception to a completed film? So you said you started 15 years ago, but the film was released about a decade ago. So did you spend a long time making it? Yeah, because I uh, committed one of the uh, biggest mistakes they advise independent filmmakers not to do. They, they say, don't start the film while you're still fundraising for it. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. So I spent five, you know, over five years fundraising and uh, working on the film. And, and really what happened is I was, while I was doing that, I was still uh, working for corporate clients around the country. And so I took advantage whenever uh, one of my clients was flying me to someplace uh, in the world where I uh, there was someone I wanted to interview for the documentary. Then I went ahead and set up the interview so that I didn't have to one, I didn't have the expense of an of an extra flight, and two, the extra carbon footprint of that. So See. it was a it was a long process, and I also I was I really tried to take a pretty journalistic approach to it, where uh, the I was doing research while I was interviewing some of the smartest people on the planet about the subject and uh, figured if I'm going to interview them for research, I might as well film it. Uh, of course, that means I ended up filming a whole lot more material than was I was ever able to put into the film. As we do always. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I'm just curious, do you have some sort of history in Australia? Because I noticed there were a lot of interviews with some Australian people in the film. 
Well, my history, you know, it, it's interesting that I've, I've been to Australia three or four times. I've actually kind of lost count because I've, <laughs> I've had, uh, as a professional filmmaker, I've been sent over there uh, on a number of interesting projects. And then the last time I was over there was actually for the Australian premiere of the Growthbusters film. Uh, and uh, I was a little reluctant to do that because that long international flight is certainly not good for the planet. But mm -hmm. sometimes you hope that you're going to uh, inspire more people to live sustainably and, and that it's worth the, the footprint. But also uh, it turns out that the the people in Australia are, I, I don't know, I just think there's, they have a better handle on having good conversations. They're just a little more candid. So I think they're ahead of people in North America in terms of just discussing overpopulation and uh, the perils of uh, everlasting economic growth. So, so there were uh, some sharp people that needed to be interviewed and there was actually a multimillionaire in Australia who provided some decent funding for the film. One day I came home, picked up a voicemail and I had a message from this guy saying, hi, my name is Dick Smith. You may or may not know me. I'm a multimillionaire. You can look me up on Wikipedia, but I just found <laughs> out, I just found out what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I'm sending you a check. Give me a call. Yeah. Oh, I love Australia. I spent a year there. I couldn't resist. And I understand this, this conundrum we have with, with the whole emissions and the flights. And it's so hard to to be perfect when there's so many challenges in front of us. And yeah, so we'll talk about a lot of things today, but I figured the first thing to talk about is just the, the, the main topic throughout, I guess throughout a lot of your work is this problem of overpopulation and we haven't covered it at all on this show yet. I think I'm so grateful that you're here. So I guess just to start off, I'm curious, how, what is overpopulation? Like, can you define it for me? And do you really believe it's something that is objective? Uh, I do. So thanks for the opportunity to address that. Uh, what I have found in my research is that we are in overshoot. Uh, that's kind of a bigger overarching problem uh, that encapsulates overpopulation. Uh, and what overshoot means is that the scale of the human enterprise has outgrown the planet. Uh, the evidence of that is overwhelming. And there was things like uh, the climate crisis, uh, we're uh, running out of fertile soil. We're desertifying vast swaths of the planet. We're pumping major rivers and aquifers dry. We're extinguishing species at an alarming rate. Uh, really, the life-supporting ecosystems that we depend on are crumbling before our very eyes. That's the evidence of overshoot. Uh, although there's, uh, you know, I'm just kind of giving you the general evidence. There are several scientific studies that, uh, that document that. And um, in, in a way, it's kind of like a, a, a rubber band. We're, uh, we're stretching the, the planet's ability to meet our needs. Uh, we, we actually, it turns out that in 1970, we first began to surpass the planet's ability to sustainably meet our needs. And we just keep on stretching this rubber band farther and farther. And so the question is whether that we're going to keep on doing that till it snaps or whether we're going to wise up and uh, scale back the scale of the human enterprise to where we're back within the, uh, the means of the planet. And there's really two things that contribute to overshoot. The two major contributors are our behavior, uh, our consumption habits, our overconsumption, as a lot of people uh, talk about who are in, in the environmental movement, and then the number of us that are doing the consuming. So uh, population and the size of the economy 
uh, are, are the, the major contributors to that. Um, you could say you could say we're not overpopulated if we could shrink back our lifestyles to uh, to a point where, when multiplied by 7.8 billion people on the planet, we weren't uh, stressing the planet's ability to meet our needs. But we would have to live, uh, and this is scientific analysis uh, behind this. Uh, we would have to live way way below poverty level in order mm. for 7.8 billion people to be in sustainable balance with nature. Is there some kind of definitive breaking point where you, you had that visual, the rubber band that people who are listening can't see, where we stretch to the point where it snaps? I'm reading this book by Hunter L. Lovins and several other authors called A Finer Future, and they talk about this, this um, inevitable collapse. Is there any way to kind of measure that or show an indefinitive way, either when it's going to happen or at what point some sort of metric hits a level where it's like we run out of air or we run out of water or something. I know there are projections, but I figured we could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think there's, there's been a lot of scientific inquiry in, into it. I don't think anyone who's done it really believes that they can pinpoint very precisely. I mean, it's a, it's a big planet. There's an awful lot of variables and mother nature is somewhat unpredictable. So uh, there's not a lot of fine precision um, but that was one of the first things I looked at was what were the scientific estimates of what of how many people the planet could support. And as I mentioned, it kind of depends. If we're living more simply, the planet can support more people. If we're living really high on the hog, then the planet has to have a much smaller population for us to, to be in balance. But the, I think the three most significant scientific inquiries into this subject were the uh, the famous uh, 1972 MIT study called Limits to Growth, where they did uh, really serious computer modeling. And they didn't try to come up with specific numbers, but they did come up with some scenarios. Uh, and the, the scenario that we have been following almost to a T since 1972 uh, predicts that uh, sometime about the middle of this century, uh, things could get pretty bad that we are it predicted that we would get to a point where, where the earth would just give up on us and, and population would plummet and it wouldn't plummet in a beautiful way. It would plummet through starvation and unmet needs. Um, there's also a planetary boundaries st ongoing study that the Stockholm Resilience Center does at Stockholm University. Uh, and they've, they, they've come up with nine planetary boundaries uh, that uh, are important for us to respect. And we are, and we have violated four of those nine already. And I'm a little surprised, that was as of 2015. And I'm a little surprised that we haven't violated more of them. And then the one that I turn to more, most often is ecological footprint analysis done by the Global Footprint Network. Uh, they every year update their data and their analysis. And what they try to come up with is, best estimate of the biocapacity of the planet and best estimate of our ecological footprint, the, uh, the demands that humankind are, are making on the renewable resources that the planet has. Uh, and, and by their calculations around 1970, we went into overshoot. We began demanding more than the planet could regenerate every year. And, uh, and, and we've gone deeper into overshoot with each passing year. And their best estimate right now is that we're asking about 
of the of, from the planet. And we're almost at two planet living right now. And that's the global average. People in the United States are actually engaged in five planet living right now. If everyone around the world lived like we do, we do it would take five planets to meet that lifestyle demand without uh, continuing to uh, injure the ecosystems that we need to meet our needs. So, so I'm curious how you, you spent most of your career working on films. I'm curious how you got to the point where you were kind of pivoting. Sounds like most of your time is spent focusing on these types of issues. Now I'm curious where the, the kind of change started. What got you interested in this, these topics? Well, you know, partly because I was fundraising for the movie and then also because I was just a crusader. Uh, I became a crusader for sustainable thinking and living um, while I was making the film that it just became, it became my life. And, and, the, and it was clear by the time I finished the film, there was so much more to, for people to learn than what I could communicate in, a, in one feature, feature length documentary. Uh, so I, I thought that I would probably make more films, but at the same time, I knew I wanted to just continue the Growthbusters project just to continue talking to college classes, reporters, uh, elected officials, anyone who would listen to try to, you know, alert and uh, motivate people to, to do what we needed to do. So I just, it became, you know, I just made a com- career shift. I just couldn't bring myself to go go back to producing you know, propaganda for, for big companies. This is more meaningful work and more joy, more joyful, even though it doesn't pay very well. <laughs> yeah. I mean that we are, as we know, that's not really what matters anyways. I think of it as like the allegory of the cave in, in an, in almost a negative sense though. It's like once, if you, if you have, if you are a person with a high sense of responsibility and you become very educated on what's going on in the world, it's almost been very difficult to go back to like, I don't want to say like making comedy films because it does make the world like a better place, but something where you're perpetuating this system that you disagree with. I think there's more and more people who are educated now. So there's more and more people who are passionate about these topics. So, yeah, I guess that's a good uh, transition to get into talking about your, your view of how the current global economic system functions at the moment. Well, so, the, so you say economic system. So you're talking about the economy. So what I would say is, what do you, what do you think is the purpose of the economy? What's it, it for? W- it would seem to be either... I, the two words that come to mind is technological evolution, and that would be one, and then growth would seem to be the other. Sorry, not growth, consumption, actually. Uh, evolved processes and consumption would be what, what comes to mind for me. I think if you kind of step back and look at it, even from a, a higher altitude, the view from 40,000 feet, the, the most basic purpose is to meet our needs. It's a way, it's a, it's a way we've organized things so that we could have our needs met. So that you don't have you don't have to farm, you don't have to drill for oil, you you know you do one thing, you provide one service in the economy, and other people do those other things that are really important. And the economy was a way we came up with to, so that we could kind of exchange goods, services, uh, money, uh, kind of to represent that, so that we could we could have our needs met and we could be more efficient at it. So so. If we didn't have needs that needed to be met, we really wouldn't need an economy. Um, but I think we, uh, along the way, over the last couple hundred years, our economy changed a lot. I mean, you know, we, we industrialized. We found 
the immense power of fossil fuels. And, uh, and that really unleashed a technological revolution. And so our lives improved a, a lot the last couple hundred years, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Indoor well, not that I was here, but yeah, some of yeah, what I've but, seen. Yeah, we've got indoor plumbing, you know, we've got everybody, most everybody's got a roof over their head. You've got, you've got heat, you've got air conditioning. If you're, if you're someplace where you need that, you've got a, a amazing transportation where it doesn't take you weeks or months to go across the country. Uh, so many things seem to have, have made our lives better. Um, and at the same time, while that was happening, the economy, the size of the economy was growing. Uh, but it, I think it was kind of a coincidence. I don't think the growth of the economy is what made our lives better. I think it was the innovations that made mm -hmm. our lives better. But we've kind of conflated that and, and come to believe that it's uh, that economic growth makes lives better. And we started measuring that, you know, we started measuring GDP. See, that's the easiest thing to measure in the economy. And we just got, we just got carried away. So we've, we've come to believe that Growing GDP makes lives better. Yeah. And uh, up to a point, it, you know, up to a point, the things that make GDP grow do make our lives better. Um, but, but it can't go on forever. And in fact, uh, I did a little experiment. It, you know, it's exponential growth. Everybody seems to think today, uh, what, a 3% annual economic growth would be decent. I mean, some, some politicians want to promise more than that. But they'd be happy with three percent. Well, what happy do you think? Happy with votes. Yeah. Well, what do you think would happen? <laughs> how how big would our economy be in, let's say, seven hundred and twenty years? Just to take a number out of thin air. Well, uh, I know the power of compound interest. It'll keep growing exponentially to the point it would be Im immeasurable in size. One we wouldn't be able to imagine it. One billion times the size of today's economy. He's got visuals, y'all. He's all right. So it's 24 <laughs> years times two, 48 years times four, 70 years times eight, 16, and then 96, 16, 120, 32 until 720 years. The economy would be a billion times larger than it is today. Yeah. Now, how many people do you think would agree that we're that we can do that on this one planet Earth? Not on, not on Earth. We got to expand to the cosmos for yeah, that we would one. Have to, yeah, we would have to become the Borg and to start uh, <laughs> plundering the, the, the universe. Um, you know, but, but nobody says, well, we, you know, 3% annual economic growth is impossible. You know, we, we just have a short-term outlook. Yeah, so we have, so we, we, we developed these goals that, um, you know, that are really impossible. And, and it turns out they're, they're not, it's not really that important that we continue growing the economy because it isn't the economic growth that makes our lives better. And in a lot of ways, the only reason today we need a growing economy is because we've got a growing population. And, and if we're trying to meet needs, if you have a bigger population, then you probably do need a bigger economy. Mm -hmm. So if we could, knowing that we've uh, gone into overshoot, and we were stretching that rubber band, if we could get our population to peak and, and start coasting back down to a more sustainable level and at the same time, scale back our lifestyles a little bit, you know, do, you know give up some of the things that really don't make us that happy, uh, you know, that would be, that's kind of the magic formula to getting back in balance with nature. And the whole purpose of that, in my view, is so that if you have kids or you choose to have a kid or kids, so that they have a chance of living a decent life. I want to give 
I want to give the next generation the same chance that we, that I was lucky enough to get. Yeah. Or, or even a better chance. And I, I really love the way you look at things and I definitely want to get more into proposed solutions for how to modify this addiction to the growth economy just addiction to the growth economy in general. But I do want to push back on your view of, of the economic system a little bit when you when you say that it's designed to meet our needs. Because if it is, it seems to be failing, number one, uh, because there's lots of people whose needs aren't being met. And it seem, and then there's lots of people who are have way, including myself, have way, way more than we need. So it would seem to me that there is something more to this economy. There's some sort of vision or dream that this, this, these human, we're all synapsising together with our minds, trying to create things and create better systems and grow and become better. And it seems to be, I'm not sure what it's leading towards, but it seems to be, we're trying to create something more than just a feed machine. Um, we're trying to I think we want to explore, we do want to explore the cosmos. We want to expand our consciousness. We want to make the world a better place, but we're all kind of trying to do it in our own way, which leads to these problems of being too focused on metrics and stuff. I just figured I would throw that back at you to see what you think. Well, quick comment about that. Yeah, I think, I think the American dream got hijacked because you're kind of describing the American dream on steroids. And, and I think it's gotten to that point where, uh, you know, for a billionaire, Big everything. Yeah, a billion, for a billionaire, a billion isn't enough. <laughs> Why no. is that not enough? <laughs> um, you know, shouldn't a million be enough? And 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 for and we've come to expect. Many of us have come to expect that every year our income is going to increase, and mm-hmm. we've come to expect that our children will earn more money than we are. Of course, we're starting to see that that's breaking down. We just the the world just can't support that anymore. Um, so that's that's coming to a stop. Um, but we've we've come to believe that uh, it's a competition, you know. Right. And we we've come to believe that uh, the our possessions reflect our value. You know, we consume things to confer status. You, uh, uh, I first noticed this, golly, probably thirty over thirty years ago. I remember the first time I noticed I, one of my clients, <clears throat> we had just finished a shoot and he got in, he was getting into his car to drive away from the shoot and he was getting into a Mercedes Benz, which I, you know, we not, we all know is not an inexpensive car. Mm-hmm. And I found myself, I envied that. I said, wow, this guy's successful. Look at that car. And I looked at uh, oh, some, of my, some of my friends who were in living in, 3,000 square foot houses with three car garages. And I thought, Mm -hmm. wow, they must be doing something right. They're a success. And so I, so that was what I strove for. I spent my thirties just trying to be, I had, I had two kids. I wanted to be a good provider. And I, I looked around and I thought, wow, the people who are successful, they're driving really nice cars. They're in big houses. And so that's what I wanted. And so when I did finally, you know, kind of, you know, hit the, the, the American dream uh, milestone for me, where I first had a house with a three-car garage. I thought I had arrived. Well, <laughs> what, what a bunch of BS that is when you really think about it. It's, yeah. pretty, it's pretty meaningless, but, but a lot of the world works is still working just like that. Well, what I don't think people realize, and this is a personal opinion, whatever, I think you've arrived when you have a loving family that you care nothing more about in the world. And I think that that's something that needs to be communicated more and more. So it's not the nice house. It's the people 
who are in it. I guess I'll, I want to talk about your solutions to how we can modify this growth economy. But just I just want to throw my personal ideas in here real quick. Just you had said that this excess, this endless growth is impossible. I just want to throw in, I, I don't actually, as a naive young 20 year old, I don't think anything is impossible. I think we can do anything. And I think we, that's why I love talking to people like you who have ideas for how to make the world a better place. Cause I think it is in disarray and it is a mess, but the beautiful thing is that we have the ability to change it and control it. I think that's great. And as far as competition goes, I think it's a lot healthier to be in competition if we're going to have it it does seem to be a natural instinct for man but i think it's health much healthier to be in competition with yourself rather than looking at that person being like he's got the mercedes like how can i be like him it's like uh, my family for example my family relies on me to be the best version of myself i love them and i want to be that for them so that's why i should try and be better so those are my ethan shapiro thoughts thrown in the middle of the podcast there Probably what your family values most from you is not how much money you make, but how much time you spend with them. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? That's something that we can grow. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of like, the, it's kind of like the cliche, you know, no one on their deathbed ever wishes they spent more time at the office. What, 100%. Do, what do they wish that if you, if you think about what you would wish for on your deathbed, that would be a pretty good list of the joys of life that really don't have a big impact on the planet. Absolutely. And one of the things I love from the film is in, in them when so those is like get us talking about the solutions to change this economy is how you talked about how I don't know if it was like Americans work 20. It was it like 21 hours a week instead of like 40 hours a week. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. You know, that's one of the big solutions, because what what's happened, you know, during the last hundred years of of great innovation and improvements in pro productivity, what did we do? We could have turned that into more time with our family, more time to fish, more time to hike, more time mm -hmm. to, to play, more time to learn. Uh, but what, instead, what we did is we turned it into more money. So we kept on working just as many hours and we, and we make a lot more money. Uh, but of course, how we spend that money kind of increases the size of our footprint. So uh, if people are worried about jobs for everybody, as we have artificial intelligence, develop and we have more and more automation, uh, the way we have jobs for everybody is that we all work less. Yeah. And I think one of the things that isn't, isn't talked about enough is we're, we're very cerebrocentric. I talked with this Phil Taylor from Mad Ag about this a lot. I think there is like, especially, especially for me trying to run my own business, it's very important to balance mental health, physical health, spiritual health, emotional health, and what you're talking about where we, I mean, it's not like you're not working when you're with your family, you know, we all know relationships take work. I just don't think it's, it's not weighed into GDP, you know? Like, uh, again, what, what does Andrew Yang talk about um, having more like maternity leave and stuff like that, having a human centric economy? I'm obsessed with stuff like this. And I really yeah. believe we can use the system that's currently in place to build a better system, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And you look at the situation we're in now where we have so many people who have lost work because of the pandemic. Uh, you know, the, the smartest solution uh, to that right now that we could be pursuing is encouraging everyone to share their job rather than to just jump back on the bandwagon of uh, robust economic growth. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. going to be, you know, unfortunately, we're, our society isn't enlightened enough yet for that kind of public policy. You know, I mean, that's a sharp turn in public policy that we need, but, uh, but I don't expect to see that today.
Well, Dave, how do we, how do we get there, man? What can we do? I know we're doing podcasts. We're talking to our our, our own, you know, think think uh, global, act local. We're talking to our friends. How can we? It's time to get really substantial action. My whole age group is on board with you. We want things changed. We want it better. But it's you have to hold on to your faith. So how how do we get this done, man? Well, it's a you know it is a culture shift, and it and that absolutely rarely does that change overnight. There's a lot of inertia keeping it, uh, keeping it from, from changing. And uh, I think the most important thing, the, the, the key, the biggest key to unlock that is uh, to change the stories that we're telling each other around the campfire, because I think that's how the culture perpetuates itself. And mm-hmm. to, so today we're bombarded with messages that reinforce the, the hijacked American dream. They reinforce the love affair with economic growth. You do not read a, uh, you know, a report on the latest quarter of GDP growth in the, in the you know, read it in the Associated Press, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, any of the mainstream news sources. Never once do they interview an ecological economist or go look for some economist who has a, a different view that maybe economic growth robust economic growth isn't good news. Uh, there's never, it, it's never acknowledged that there's another side to that story. And, you know, the truth is that I think it's the only side to the story. Um, but I think we have to go through this phase where at least it, they start reporting on, you know, on this alternative viewpoint, kind of like with climate change. You know, for the longest time, every time they did a story about climate, they talk to somebody who was concerned about it and they talked to somebody who denied it uh, to give both sides. So I think for a while, uh, you know, I would settle for, for a while for economic reporting to at least acknowledge that not everybody thinks that 3% annual economic growth is, is good news or that not everybody thinks that the fact that Austin, Texas grew its population like crazy is a sign that it's a successful city. But uh, today I see no signs of any acknowledgement by the journalists of this alternative view. So, you know, do we have to wait for those journalists to die and younger, more enlightened journalists to take their place? I hope not. Um, I'm doing my best to try to, you know, rattle the cages of the journalists and say, hey, you guys might want to study up on this. You've been programmed from birth to believe one thing. And it, it turns out that's not the final answer. No, and it never is. And there's always this constant continuous flow of evolution and personal growth and education. I think it's so important. And it's it's challenging because people really hold on to the beliefs they've been conditioned uh, to have because it's to be frank, it's terrifying to to come to have your foundation shattered, whether it's um, religious or like your educational beliefs. It's hard to then rebuild yourself from the ashes. But that's another non sequitur. I'm curious um, how you think things have changed since you actually released the film, because it's coming up on the 10 year anniversary this year, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I wish that I, that the report card was, wow, things have changed a lot, but, wish. but things are changing a lot. Now you mentioned your generation wants change. And I, you know, I do see a whole lot more, giving me hope just over the last few years that people are waking up. There's a lot more conversations about sustain, the true sustainability. Uh, overpopulation is you know, starting to be discussed again and, and, and not such, be such a taboo topic. And there's a really a groundswell of smart people and organizations 
really working hard to uh, to get governments to change their uh, policy pursuit of economic growth. There's this uh, this coalition called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance that has mm-hmm. a number of nonprofits and uh, educational organizations all working together to to do that and there's a brilliant uh, economist Kate Rayworth that wrote a book I can't recommend too highly called Donut Economics okay. and she's she is being engaged by uh, national governments and and the uh, governments of big cities to come in and advise them about okay how do we how do we get into recovery from our growth addiction it's pretty exciting yeah it it's, it's important to stay excited as well. And I think there's so much potential. And again, I always think it comes back to just having the discussions and the fact that you say that the media doesn't talk about this kind of stuff is, is troublesome. And it's something to definitely consider. But back on proposed solutions to the, uh, the essential problem of overgrowth and overpopulation, do you think we've actually reached a stage where you would say it's, it's morally apprehensible to have too many children because what you know everyone has their their own vision and their own dream and what if i told you for example i was a guy that wanted to have 10 kids so i can hang out with all my kids and they all have different personalities is that wrong am i am i doing bad by my kids by doing that a couple of thoughts about that um i don't think it's productive for me to judge you or anyone else i think we i think the most important thing is for us to judge ourselves so um, you know, so my goal in, in my evangelism about, about the subject <laughs> is to, I joke, if, if anybody puts up a tent, I'll, be, I'll show up and preach. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, and so thanks for putting up this tent. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure already. Um, so my goal is to make sure that everyone has good information. Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. I, you know, my goal is for everyone making a family size decision to be making an informed family size decision, because I honestly believe that anyone making a decision, if they have full knowledge of, of just where that we are with that rubber band right now, that they'll make the most loving decision they can for the future of the child or children that they might be considering having. Um, so I don't think we have to get into the conversation about whether it's irresponsible or, or reprehensible or anything like that. But also I wanna mention that uh, some people may know this, you know, the, most countries in the overdeveloped world, uh, our average fertility rate is below replacement. It's below to the average family size in the overdeveloped world. But that doesn't mean that we've solved the problem in places no. like the U.S. or Australia or, or Canada, because we're, uh, especially because we're such big consumers, you know, we're vastly overpopulated. We either need to start living like monks immediately or we need to really embrace and support and celebrate the small family decisions that younger people like you are, are, are making today. Uh, and we might just need to forgive the people who have good information and still choose to have 10 children. There, you know, if, if people love kids, there are a lot of other ways to express that love and to support, uh, support children and, and meet your need without you know, manufacturing, you know, that many more human beings to overpopulate the planet. Yeah, very well put. And I'm definitely all about minimizing any kind of hate 
or resentment that's going on because we we just have enough. We the hate and resentments really? on on the overgrowth too, Dave. We gotta we gotta stop that from growing as well. So I, I and I'm also I'm more than happy to provide this tent for you and anyone else who wants to come and voice their opinions about how they think the world could be better because it it definitely can be. And then I just want to give a real quick shout out to Stephen Moses for for sending me your your name and information. He's a good good guy. So it's it's a pleasure and. I just want to transition a little bit to talking about your experience podcasting because I think it is such a powerful tool and it is so independent. There's no, there's nobody telling me how to ask these questions, what to say or who to have on the show so I can actually talk to anyone and learn everything. Dave's got a sign in the back of his image for you guys who are listening. Will podcast to save the planet. I'm very on board with that. So Dave, you have you are the host of, of two podcasts or you're the co-host of one and the host of another, if that's correct. Co-host actually of both. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah, one is the Overpopulation Podcast, which I am very proud of. It is hard-hitting, very candid uh, uh, information about and, and analysis of current news events, uh, hopefully helping to alert people and educate them about overpopulation and inspire more young people to make small family decisions. And the other is the Growth Busters Podcast about sustainable living, which is you know, it covers overpopulation, it covers economic growth, overconsumption, plastic straws, uh, yep. you know, uh, veganism, all, you know, just everything related to the journey that hopefully we're all on of trying to uh, have plenty of joy in our life while we uh, skinny up our lifestyle so that we aren't having as big an impact on the planet as, uh, as we did yesterday. So every day yeah. I'm hoping that my impact's a little less than the day before. That makes sense. What's your experience been like with hosting those two shows? Um, well, that's, it's a joy. Yeah, I'll tell you why, why, you know, why did I start doing that instead of making more films? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? Well, one thing is it's uh, more expensive to make a film than it is to make a podcast. You can generate a lot more content uh, quickly and with less investment of time and, and money. Uh, just creating audio content. Um, But two, you know, in the era of YouTube, uh, people's attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter. And so if you're making a video today, uh, the first thing somebody does when they start to play your video is they look to see how long it is. Mm -hmm. And if it's longer than two or three minutes, you probably lose half of your audience right there. They're not going to watch even a 15 minute video, let alone a one hour or a 90 minute film. Um, But uh, people will listen to a longer podcast because they can do they can listen while they're gardening, exercising, commuting. It's kind of one of the last places where the the short attention span isn't killing us. So it's one of the last places where you can have a, a deeper, more meaningful conversation. So I think that's really important. And then you alluded to the other real advantage of it is, you know, you see my frustration with the media for for perpetuating these old, uh, cultural myths. Well, we're the media. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's beautiful. Yeah, if I could just get you know a few million people to listen to the podcasts that I co-host, I could make a bigger difference faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm competing with the New York Times, and they still have me beat. Darn it. Yeah, well, you're competing with Joe Rogan too, who's just hilarious yeah. and insightful. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on a distinction between building a sustainable economy versus something that's more like a regenerative economy? This is a space that I, I started off more in like climate change, sustainability. Now I'm, I'm trying to learn about the fundamentals of how we live and trying to regenerate what we've already lost. Yeah, I think regenerative economy is a is an essential part of the 
the equation going forward. I think we have, we have to be careful that, uh, and, you know, and, and I would put that even though it's not really all technology, but I would also put next to it, there's some technological innovation that can be helpful. Uh, I tend to think that we put way too much faith in technology because there are so many unintended consequences of it, but there's some benefits from some technology. And I think we have to be careful not to rely on those so much that we think we can just keep on growing the number mm -hmm. of people that we serve. You know, turning, turning to a regenerative economy is not going to make the world meet the needs of 7.8 billion people sustainably. You know, we've got to shrink the scale of the human enterprise, no matter what, no matter how smart we run the economy. That's interesting. What what makes you so certain about this? Because my next question was, do you believe it's actually impossible, basically what you just said, to have a steadily growing population and efficient resource use? What what scientific metrics or whatever are, are giving you this this certainty that it cannot be done? Even if we had amazing leaps and bounds in technology, you still seem to think you're like, I don't know, man. Well, you're kind of describing what they call decoupling, where the uh, where the economy can grow, but it's decoupled from the, the, the physical impacts on the planet, the damage that it does, the resources that it requires yeah. and all that. And there are some people who are doing some cheerleading for that, but they uh, cherry pick the data. They're being misled by uh, not full accounting. And there's really no evidence that there's a significant amount of decoupling that can be accomplished. You know, there's just yeah. some basic, there's just sort of, sort of some basic facts of life. And the scientists that have done the most serious inquiry uh, to estimate how many people, you know, what would be a sustainable population on the, on the planet, the, the most credible estimates range between one and 3 billion. And we're, <laughs> you know, we're over twice that. Yeah. So, you know, so we got a lot, of, we have a lot of shrinking to do. So I, I so that, that gives me no faith in being able to continue any kind of business as usual, but just uh, while we just kind of tweak at the margins and improve our practices. Yeah. Well, what if everyone in the, you know, my, my optimist lunacy, what if everyone was to work together to take care of everything and all the resources? Could we not have a regenerative economy where the population, maybe it's not growing exponentially, but maybe we have a, f a few more people each year and then we are able to grow lots of plants and have other animals and then take care of them. And then we all kind of have this system where we're working with each other. No, we can't, we can't do that. <laughs> well, utopia. Two, two, yeah. Two answers to that one. Well, one is what's so utopian about it. Is it really essential that we find, figure out a way for population to grow forever? Um, you know, we're, we're already naturally choosing smaller families and population, it's going to peak early next, worst case, early next century, if we, if we do nothing practically mm -hmm. about, about it, um, kind of naturally, but we, we really need it to peak sooner and, and to decline faster than that. Um, but, you know, my, my goal would be to have an average, if we just had an average family size of one child for a hundred mm -hmm. years, for a hundred years, we'd be back to 3 billion in a hundred years. That'd be, that's, that's amazing. It, it's interesting. So, yeah. Interesting to know. Yeah, yeah. Not that long. And that's an average. So that means, you know, there could be some people who have four kids and a lot of people who chose to go child-free and a lot of people who chose to have one child. So it's not, it's not a, a big limit. And I want to be sure 
I'm clear that I'm not proposing any that we dictate or legislate anyone's decisions. I just think we want to make sure that they have the information because they're, yep. they're free to choose uh, what they want. And then the other thing is, you know, our impact on the planet is kind of like the rectangle of a, the, the area of a rectangle. Uh, and one side of the rectangle is population and the other side is the size of our economy. And, you know, if you shrink one, if you shrink the size of the economy by behaving better and better and better, but you keep on lengthening the other dimension of the rectangle, you know what's going to happen to yep, the area. Yeah, you can't just keep it going forever because the area will continue to, to grow at some point. Yeah, you guys got to check out this film. It's really good. And it's, it's very interesting. And I, I love it. You, you, we have to as Americans, because you obviously you've spent decades and we have to say, I'm not telling you what to do, man. This is just my personal ideas. There's no way to communicate with Americans without saying that. It's pretty hilarious. <laughs> but um, I guess what holds me back from jumping into the overpopulation is a problem. I'm against it thing. It's just that everyone is special and unique. And I just I see the value in every person. But when you put it like, if we all work together to have less future people, as in if the person doesn't already exist and we could all be better off with less people, it's, it's definitely very compelling. So thank you for that, Dave. You know, one of the smartest scientists that I interviewed for the film, Dr. Paul Ehrlich, who's famous for having written the population bomb with his wife back in 1968, uh, what he, he says something that I think is pretty smart and appropriate here. He says, I'm all for lots of children because people are wonderful and they're unique, but do we have to have them all at the same time? Can't we spread them out over some centuries? Mm -hmm. and, if we can, and if we can do that, then they can have so much better lives. We won't have to work so hard to, to give them a shot at a decent life. And we won't be taking so much risk that they'll end up living a bleak life. Yeah. And I think it's definitely fair to say in this country, or generally speaking, we focus way too much on instant gratification and getting things done now. And we create these false metrics that you have to get this done by this year and hit this quarterly report or, or else you're a failure. So I, I think it's it's very beneficial for people to have this bigger vision and see that they're, they're part of something more and there is a future. There's, there's a future beyond your life. It's just something valuable to, to, to talk about. So at, at the end here, I just would love to get your thoughts on when, when you, when I say, let's talk about the next generation like what comes to your mind and, and what kind of advice would you give to people like gen z millennial just kind of coming of age and involved in this this mess <laughs> um i think my advice would be uh think about what uh think about what brings you joy you know there are lots of opportunities for more more joy and uh and focus on that and don't get don't get caught up in the, the old America or the, it, it should be old, but the, the hijacked American dream. Um, mm -hmm. Cause that's just killing us. The, I think the best advice for somebody really young, who's just starting to really kind of create their adult life is yeah. don't get on the treadmill. You know, so many of us have spent years on this treadmill in service to this growth obsessed system, uh, you know, being encouraged by companies to work our butts off in order to uh, generate more sales and more revenue and, and be uh, productive consumers for the, for the economy and spend lots of money on black, every Black Friday so that re retail sales uh, numbers go up. Um, stay off the treadmill and staying out of debt, I think is one of the keys. Uh, mm -hmm. Once you once you get out of debt, then you discover you have a whole lot more freedom to share your job with somebody else. You don't have that pressure 
to make the, to make those monthly payments. And boy, that is just so freeing to yeah to not have that pressure. Uh, those are the big things. And then and then thank you for what you're already doing. Most young people today are not having four, six, or eight kids. They uh, they can't afford it. Uh, right. For one thing, but they also have pretty exciting lives, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, kids are uh, having being a parent is a full time job, and it's not an it's not an easy job, and there are lots of ways to have a fulfilling life beyond uh, just you know recreating a, a new version of you. Yeah, and very well put, man. Uh, and I definitely really I've I personally can say I've I've struggled with this because we are conditioned by our society to to want these materialistic things to want to make a lot of money to to want to work 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 and do something more and then uh, in the course of the last year starting my business and being really being militant about who's getting my my brain waves who's who I'm using my energy for it's all being in service I've found has been it's I won't lie it's still very challenging I'm still trying to find my way but being in service to to not like these these things we were taught to be in service to, but being trying to be in service to something more meaningful is so important. So I guess my last question, and we hinted at it earlier, talking about going fishing with your family and spending more time with your family. What what do you think really matters in, in life, Dave, that we've kind of missed out on with this growth obsession? Well, gen- generally, I, re- I would return to that cliche about what would you wish you had spent more time doing when you're on your deathbed, or what would you put on your bucket list? Um, and I just don't think it would be making more money or doing any, you know, any, doing anything in service to a company. It would be, gosh, I wish I had uh, spent more time with my kid or, uh, uh, you know, telling bedtime stories, more time with my significant other. Uh, I worked too much. I, I, you know, I wish I had read more. I wish I had yeah. gotten another college degree. One of the guys I interviewed for the film, Mike Nickerson, he called it the three L's, uh, learning, loving, and laughing. Yeah, you know, those absolutely. Are, those are the good, th- those are the, that's the good stuff, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> I always figure I'll just throw this last last anecdote in or, or, or story is I, I dated when I lived in Australia, we talked about earlier in the show and I, I dated this girl from the UK and I was like madly in love with her. And we um, I knew that the, the study abroad thing was going to end. So I actually extended and stayed like a whole nother semester because I was so infatuated and having so much fun. I didn't want it to end. So and then we, obviously we broke up and it didn't work out and whatever. We're, we're fine, fine terms now. But I think the point that I came to is when you're in like a relationship with someone or you have someone you love, I think you should treat it like a study abroad. And every single day you're running out of time and you want to, these little moments are, are what makes life worth living and so important. So that that's, that's my words of wisdom for, for the day. Dave, I, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, man. Watching your film was amazing. I'm going to have to check out your podcast. I really appreciate you taking some time to come and speak with me today. It's really been a real joy. Well, right back at you, man, Ethan. Great, uh, great conversation. Great questions. Thanks for thanks for putting up the tent so I could do do a sermon. <laughs> Anytime, man. You're always welcome back, and so is anyone else who's inspired. I'd love to get. I'm sending out emails every week. I'd love to get someone emailing me saying, "Hey, man, I want to come on your show." So if you're listening, you want to come on the show, and you got something to talk about, let me know. So, Dave, thanks so much for coming on, and everyone, we will see you next week. Enjoy another fantastic week. Take it easy, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized.
visit ccrboulder.com today.